Hello, everybody. Um, tonight, I'd like to um, push myself a little bit. I'm um, doing a different sort of talk, and that is instead of um, outlining the whole structure from the beginning and having it all written down, I've just written down four or five ideas that I want to talk about and some poems that I want to recite and sort of fill in the rest sort of um, as the mood presents itself. So I don't really know. I've never done a talk like this, so I don't know what will happen. <clears throat> but what I, what I thought I would talk about tonight is um, being human, coming back to our humanness. And, and what prompted this, this subject was the recent um, disclosures of the various communities, spiritual communities in America and elsewhere, where the um, abbot or the roshi or the guru has in some way um, caused um, a lot of confusion in the community through his activities, his sexual activities or his drinking activities or whatever the activities are. And um, I was just reflecting on this confusion. And the, the purpose of this talk is not really to justify or condemn the activities of the, of the Roshi or the uh, spiritual master, but rather to look at the confusion that it stirred up in the community itself, including our community. Because it seems to me that what that means is really that we've somehow denied our humanness. And we've denied the humanness in the behavior of others, and we've also somehow internalized it and denied our own feelings of limitation. If we look at spirituality as a movement back towards our fundamental being. If we look at spirituality in terms of a realignment to something we have forgotten about, that thing that we have forgotten about is our humanness. We have spent our whole lifetimes, it seems to me, denying it ever since we were very small. We've, in some way or other, been pushing it away for one reason or another, perhaps because our parents haven't approved of certain behaviors that we've done, or perhaps our friends or teachers or whoever the significant people in our lives were. We've learned to relate to ourselves, and we've learned to relate to other people as half-people. We haven't been able to embrace the whole range of our behaviors, the whole range of our attitudes and moods. We're caught in feeling that if we change something, if we just change something, we'll be okay. I think that's a, an assumption that we really need to question. 
I think that's something that we really need to get to terms with here in spirituality, in practice. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be human? And it seems to me that being human is our condition. And that what we need to do is not become perfect, but to become perfectly human. And we already are human, so it really means a surrendering to what we already are. It really means a dropping of our pretensions, of the counterfeit part of our lives. It seems one of the real beauties of Buddhism is that it really promises us nothing. As one teacher who teaches here likes to say, there are no guarantees. And at first, we think of the Eightfold Path as a blueprint for our enlightenment, for getting to a state in which we can be somewhat other than the way we are. But as we practice, we begin to see that the Eightfold Path is an unfolding, is a revealing. And it doesn't take us away from ourselves, but brings us back to ourselves. It reveals us, like a flower opening. I can remember one time going to a um, stage show with Marcel Marceau, who's a famous French mime expert. And the last skit that he did stayed with me, and it's been perhaps 15 or 20 years since I've seen him. The skit was called The, the Mask Maker. And um, just using, as you know, not using any props except his own facial expressions and movements. He was a, fa a mask maker in which he placed, put on, he made happy masks and sad masks. And he would put on the happy mask, which was just, was nothing really. He would just put on that and then he would smile like it was a, a mask on his face and then he would take it off. And he put on the sad mask and then his face would be distorted in sadness. And he did this a few times and it was amazing to see the, the change in his facial expressions as he changed the the masks. Suddenly one of the masks, the happy mask, got stuck on his face. And he was smiling radiantly with this mask on his face, but his body was in a contortion and in an anxiety and in a writhing movement to try to get this mask off because it was stuck and he was, his body was saying he was very much afraid. And he was struggling. And finally, he tears off this happy mask. And underneath is this incredible sense of this man's face of distortion and, um, and pain in it. And I think that's a lot of the talk tonight. It has to do 
with returning to that pain after having removed all our masks. It has to do with returning to our sense of limitation, to our sense of humanness, to our finiteness, to our imperfections. It has to do with embracing those qualities. I wonder how many of us have returned to that original phase. I also remember reading about an interview with Peter Sellers when he was alive several years ago. And the interviewer would talk to him. And every time he would ask Peter Sellers a question, Peter Sellers would put on an imp impersonation of some character that he's done. And after days, spending days with this man, he never knew what Peter Sellers' voice was really like. And so at the end, he asked him, he says, now listen, Peter, I just want to hear your voice. I just want to hear what you sound like. And Peter Sellers said, I think this is me. No, that's not me. He says, this is me. No, that's not me. And he kept trying to find his voice, and he couldn't find his voice. He couldn't find his normal speaking tone. And the interviewer ended by saying, there's something sad about someone who doesn't know his voice, that doesn't know his sound. And I think we all need to rediscover our face and our voice. We need to rediscover our limits our limitations. We need to embrace these things because the practice, if it goes another direction, the practice, if it doesn't embrace that, is a fiction. So what Buddhism does, what meditation does, is reveal our complexities. It reveals to us where we have been masking ourselves, where, have we, we, where we have been impersonating our, other people and our, ourselves. We read through the distor distortions. We come back to a sense of rawness. We come back to our sense of nature within us. The symbol that seems to represent that most to me, that simplicity, that coming back, is the symbol of the earth. And I think one of the most beautiful mudras for me is that mudra where the Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, when his mind was attacking him, when he was probably lost in the different hindrances. And he just reaches down in a very human gesture, and he just touches the earth. He just comes back home. He just makes contact again. 
My years in Thailand were very much that. When I first went into the monastery, I went in and bowed to the abbot, who was a very, very famous abbot in Thailand. And I told him that I was here to practice and to hear, and here to learn from him. And he looked at me and he said, if you want to learn from me, just go away. I don't want you here. He says, I'm not the teacher. The teacher is the forest. That will teach you. And I went away and I thought, I don't really understand what he meant. And it sounded good, but as I stayed there most part of three years, I began to understand. I began to understand that what nature does is strip us from our pretensions. It leaves us nowhere to move. It's not artificial. When I think of going into a city or moving into a, a town, I think of it as being a very artificial thing. One step away from nature, really mind-created, we're moving into a consciousness, the, the, uh, monuments and all of those things were created by thought. But when you step into the forest, when you step out the back here, when you walk Lilac Lane or around the loop, there's no pretension in that. There's nothing artificial about that. And it's hard to be artificial in that because it brings us down to its level. It sinks us down to a fundamental, our fundamental rawness, our nakedness, our humanness. I remember one time I was, had a couple of dogs that used to come around my kuti, my little hut, and I would feed them every day. And they were sort of not such um, powerful dogs. They were more the weaker dogs of the Wat. And, and the dogs at the Wat, Wat means monastery, the dogs at the Wat were a very ferocious lot. It was really, literally a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And only the strongest ones survived. So I felt very, um, I felt very good about what I was doing, feeding these lesser animals that wouldn't really stand a chance otherwise. And um, I remember there was one dog in, in the Watt who was um, sort of the king dog, and he would come around periodically and he would take what he wanted and then he would leave. And I, he pissed me off so bad, I put out my leftovers and that dog would come out and he would eat it and then the other dogs of course would back away and, and then when he was gone he, they would come back and eat what they, um, it, what the leftovers were. I remember one day there was an especially good meal that we had been served and there were bones and meat and I put it out there and the dogs, the two, my two dogs came up and were starting to eat there and then suddenly this king dog came up and he um, bit one of my dogs and um, started eating the food. Oh, I, I just can't explain how angry I was. I took um, a stick. I was a monk. 
Okay. I took a stick running down there and I just cracked that dog right over the uh, back, the side, like that, with that stick. And then I just, I just stopped. And I, I mean, who was the animal in there? Was, I, was it the animal or was I the animal? And I just saw that here I was, just base level. I just, I mean, that, it was, that is the violence that was in me. And that I had a choice. I had the choice to act out of that violence. And that dog had to act out of that violence because they knew nothing else. Or I had the choice of doing something else. That choice is particularly human. That choice is what separates us, our abilities. I'd like to read tonight um, a few poems by Ryokan, who's one poet Japanese poet who, more than anything, reminds me of a very human man. His emotions are there and his situation is predicament. And he just kind of puts it all out there. First day of spring, blue sky, bright sun. Everything is gradually becoming fresh and green. Carrying my bowl, I walk slowly to the village. The children, surprised to see me, joyfully crowd about, bringing my begging trip to an end at the temple gate. I place my bowl on top of a white rock and hang my sa sack from the branch of a tree. Here we play with the wild grasses and throw a ball. For a time, I play catch while the children sing. Then it is my turn. Playing like this, here and there, I have forgotten all about the time. Passerbys point and laugh at me, asking, what is the reason for such foolishness? No answer I give, only a deep bow. Even if I rely, replied, they would not understand. Look around, there is nothing besides this. some ways that just seeing this old monk on his begging ground he just stops and plays with the village children and loses sense of time anything but his activity and he's just being having fun himself and the joy of that activity Somehow that really represents to me a statement of humanness, of the issues we're talking about tonight. It sort of brings us back to a simplicity of life. It brings us back to, sort, to just a behavior without, any, without anything added to it. Another poem by someone else. I walk and greet people, shake hands and talk for a while. 
All day passes with ease, for I have nowhere to go, and I drift like a soft cloud. Drifting like a soft cloud. There's a sensitivity that that brings. Sensitivity to nature, sensitivity to ourselves, sensitivity to our limitations, an embracing of those limitations, and not moving from those limitations. My heart is a piece of fine crystal which a strong wind could shatter. Light dances off of leaves and the sound of the forests unite as a hawk flies overhead. I live for the beauty of the walk, sights moving deeply within my heart. Hours come and hours go, but the still point moves not at all. And one, one final poem by Roykin, Ryokan. After spending the day begging in town, I now sit peacefully under a cliff in the evening cool, alone with one robe and one bowl. The life of a Zen monk is truly the best. Some years ago, there was a, an art exhibit in Worcester. And it was um, an art exhibit of, a, of Zen paintings, very simply done. And I went to see it, and I remember one particular painting that stuck with me. In the, in the Zen paintings, man was not somehow central to the figure, but he was a part of the figure, but he was a part of the figure in in his normal, um, his, no, his normal um, size was um, in proportion to things. He wasn't somehow central to the picture. And in this one picture, there was a huge mountain. There was some trees and a waterfall coming down. And there were three Zen monks talking in the field. And they were laughing. It was called the Three Laughing Men. And one of them had their hand, his hand raised like this. And there was just, it was just a, a picture, but somehow it was so human. I mean, it was just people just laughing in a normal way, but their spirit was so natural in a way. And, it, and the drawing was so simple. I remember then going down to the floor below that, in which there was Western art in which the bodies were gross and heavy and sweaty and kind of this, this big lump in which it sort of took up the whole picture. And I just, I just, I just thought, well, something's wrong, you know. That this, there's a, just a, something wrong with the perception that we live with in the West here. And it took me a long time before I understood what it was that was wrong. We relate to spirituality, it seems to me, as, as a flight away from our humanness, away from our limitations. 
towards something divine, towards something good, towards something pure. We even have a book called Visuddhimagga, which means the path of purification, which means the way we are now isn't pure. I question that. I question that. The ordinary man, the man out in the street, doesn't know of his divinity. The holy man, the guru, the man that you can't reach because he's so ethereal, doesn't know of his humanness. Both of those are misperceptions. Both of those are distortions, it seems to me. Both of those are a form of denial. I remember a couple of years ago, the Dalai Lama came to India and there was a meditation course going on and he came over to give a discourse in the meditation for the meditation group and he came in with this entourage as his holiness does and he sits down and he goes let's see what should I say and then he scratches and said oh my confusion already he says and there was such humanness coming from that, such joy, such warmth. He wasn't being pretentious, he was just sitting down and then acknowledging his confusion. He then proceeded to give a very good talk. <laughs> but this, this little thing right here, the Taoist symbol, yin-yang, this I think represents a point that I'd like to talk about. And in my own way, I'd like to interpret it. I don't know what it really means. But it seems to me that the whiteness is, a, is the divinity within us. And the blackness is somehow the ordinariness. But the line between them, which is the meeting of those two surfaces, isn't ordinary and isn't divine, but a combination or a movement or a merging of the two. And it's that line that we walk in practice. It's that line that is our humanness. You see, God is not in us. There's no Atman, no soul, no sense of God in us. God and man are two perceptions of the same thing. I th this line seems to me to be represented in other traditions as well. Christ coming to earth, God coming to earth, God coming down, Buddha touching his hand, is the meeting of those two things, the meeting of heaven and the meeting of earth, the plane on which we walk, the movement of practice, Another poem by Ryokan. How do you pronounce it? Ryokan. My life may appear melancholy, 
but traveling through this world, I have entrusted myself to heaven. In my sack, three show of rice. By the hearth, a bundle of firewood. If someone asks me what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say. Wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in answer. Seems like it's a pretty good answer. Walking this line between the divine and between the ordinary means facing ourselves in awareness. It means continually learning from the master. And that master is not a master in form, but the master of life. It is not a master in person, but all persons. The master life is the teacher. We become a disciple to life. The Buddha said, be a light unto yourself, Ananda, when I am gone. That master life shows us when we lie. We tell a lie. We know that we told a lie. We can pretend or rationalize it. We can push it away. We can put paint face after face over that. We can make it all right within our minds that we told that lie. But we were shown something. If we deny what we were shown, then we lose the lesson. The master life shows us when we're angry. When we say something off the wall or hurting to somebody with our self-righteousness behind it. When we poke somebody and then we shove away their tear. We shove away the sorrow and pain that we've caused them. We've shoved away the lesson. We shoved away the understanding which moves us into a deeper feeling of our humanness. We've shoved away our humanness. I wonder, it's very interesting. When we begin to understand that the way we are, the package that we have is what we have to deal with, then there's a sense that we need to do is to move into it. I remember being in, on a retreat in which there was, it was a closed retreat, and I was staying in a little cabin, and for three weeks I had such an incredible amount of fear and anger in me. Everywhere I moved, I was fearful. Everything I did, there was fear. And I remember at one point, just about, it was just about all I could stand. And I sat down after three weeks, and after three weeks of fear, that's a long time. You begin to think it's going to be with you the rest of your life. Even though you know about a Nietzsche, you still think it's going to be with you the rest of your life. And you sit down, I sat down, and I just said, okay, I'm sick of this. And I had that sense of just, okay, I want to know what's going on. And in that non-movement, 
in that complete acceptance, in that complete to total acknowledgement, it went away. But if it hadn't gone away, it would have been okay. Do you see how often we invalidate other people's feelings? Like if I had come in here and talked with each one of you before this talk began, and if I had said to you, you know, I'm, I have some fear about this talk, I'm afraid. I'm sure that most of us would have said to me in reply, look, there's no need to be afraid. You're good, you've done it before, you can just get in there and do it again. There's just no reason to be afraid. You see how that invalidates my feeling? You see how we do that continually, day after day, not only to ourselves, but to other people as well? When we invalidate, we invalidate the other person's humanness. Or we give Dharma answers to things. So maybe somebody would have said, well, fear is only thought. You don't have to worry about that. It's only thought. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions you can ask yourself to see how much you invalidate your own experience is what do you do with attachments? How do you, how do you handle an attachment? How do we handle an attachment? If you're attached to something, you go, oh, God, an attachment? And is there like this, this pushing away? Or is there the acknowledgement that the mind is in its limitations, in its way of being, that it is desiring something, and then moving through that desire and seeing it? explicitly seeing it totally. I remember I was sitting in on interviews with, with one of the teachers in India and one of the students came in and he had been to a number of different spiritual centers in India and he was very confused. And he said, I, listen, I am confused, he says. I don't understand what liberation is. Please, tell me what liberation is. And this teacher said, um, Let's look at your confusion. And then went into the confusion with that person. He didn't even address the question of liberation. And what I understand that the reason for that now is that the liberation was in the understanding of the confusion. Third Zen Patriarch talks about being without anxiety about imp our imperfections. Being without anxiety about our non-perfection. To be complete, to be human, means we must embrace everything. And again from the Third Sin Patriarch. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. We don't 
push away the world of senses. We don't push away the world of emotions. We don't push away the world of ideas. Ryokan, again. Alone, wandering through the mountains, I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled, and there is only a path for foxes and rabbits. The well next to an ancient bamboo grove is dry. Spider webs cover a forgotten brook. Dust is piled on the floor. The stairway is completely hidden by the wild fall grasses. Crickets, disturbed by my unexpected visit, shriek. Looking up, I see the setting sun. Unbearable loneliness. That man isn't pushing away his loneliness. To acknowledge our divinity and our ordinariness, all we need to do is to be aware of our ordinariness. Because our ordinariness, which is the sense of limitation, meets, when it meets our awareness, it becomes the unlimited, becomes non-bound. It's the meeting of God and man, awareness and the world of form. It's that line between the yin and the yang. It's the place that we walk. It's the place that we move into practice. It's where the limited meets the limitless and the infinite meets the finite. Thank you. If we can just sit for two or three minutes.
Well, welcome to Ted Max Amateur Hour. <laughs> um, <clears throat> tonight I would like to talk about the mind and its fix. And I was going to title this talk, um, Taking a Fix. But um, it was a little too flippant for the seriousness of the topic. We've, um, we've heard a couple of talks here. <clears throat> One that Fred gave, which was very heart-centered, and I think it moved all of us a great deal. And then Bill gave one, which was more descriptive in nature. But tonight's talk is a different style of talk entirely. Tonight's talk is an investigation, an exploration into a topic. And it may miss the point for some of us, but it may connect with others. I think it's the thing that's missing sometimes <coughs> in long-term sitting. It was for myself. To have somebody probe deeply into something and to be able to follow it so that we can move together into the topic. And that's what it will take tonight, really, is a sharing, a moving together in this. Hopefully we can do it together. I'm not so sure about me. <laughs> so what I would like to do is to um, offer this as a common experience for both of us so that we both take what is being said into our own experience and that way give it validity into our own lives. <clears throat> so it's an exploratory topic. It's an investigation. It's a probing into a particular thing. <clears throat> I just recently got back from Thailand, not so recently, but within the last six months. And I remember being amazed while I was over there at how conditionally bound my perceptions were of the world. How conditionally bound and our culture had taught us to perceive in a certain way. To give a couple ex of examples, in Thai, they use tones when they speak. And each word can mean five different things depending upon the tone that it's given. So you can end up calling somebody a horse or a dog when you mean for them to come. It's the same word, it's just a different tone. And Westerners, myself included, were always just completely just tearing those tones apart. We could never get them right. And the Thais knew exactly, because their t ears had been attuned to that perception, knew exactly what somebody was saying, and they knew exactly what tone and what perception to, to give to that tone. And it began to dawn on me how the culture in which we live teaches us a certain way to perceive the world and locks us into a particular frame of reference that we don't really see because we don't see the forest for the trees. We can't get out of our own conditioning to see it. It takes going to another culture often to see that. And that's one of the real benefits of going to the East, actually, 
So our culture emphasizes certain points and ignores other points. And we are taught these ways of perception by everybody and person we meet throughout our lives in this culture. Friends, parents, teachers, everyone we bump into gives us their conditioning and reinforces our own. Really, much of our mental and psychological processes are, are shaped by the socialization process that we have in our culture. And we believe in its validity because we don't test it, because we don't have a perspective on it. In meditation, we can't ignore anything. We can't just assume the way we've been taught is the right way. We must really confront and go beyond our socialization. We must go beyond the limits that society imposes upon us and the limits that we impose upon ourselves. I would like to for you to think of meditation this evening as really the science of perception. For we investigate the world through invest in meditation. See this for yourself now. Follow me into this. We investigate the world through meditation to see if the world is the way we've always been taught it was or whether it's something else, a different perception. That's what we're all doing here, really. To answer this question, we must start at the beginning. We must explore what perception is. We must explore how it is that we perceive anything. If just to take one particular sense, the sense of touch. When we touch something, we don't really feel the thing that's being touched, do we? Rather, we feel our fingers, the sense of touch, what's happening inside. You see? And that's true for all five senses. That on the point of contact, we're already one step removed from, from the object. Oh, is everybody with me here? Our senses are also dependent, of course, on the physical structure. In sight, it's dependent upon what wavelength of light we can see. Our eyes are attuned to see what frequency of sound our ears are attuned to hear. And different, of course, different animals and different insects see completely differently than we do. And I wonder which eye is correct. I wonder if each eye has its own point of view, each eye reflects upon the world from the prison that it's been conditioned to, to see by. And the prison in which the, the structure itself perceives. But we never question whether this is the total picture or not. The mind 
is really a perceptual mechanism. Okay? So now let's try to just see if you can feel what I'm saying here. It shapes the way we perceive. We like to think that reality is imposing itself on us. We like to think that our minds are open and spacious and that reality is a certain way and it comes in on us. But that's not the truth. The mind is a projective mechanism, not a receptive mechanism. It's like a focal, focal setting of a camera with a red filter on it. At certain points, it can be focused down so that it screens out certain incoming data. And the red filter colors it a certain way. And it bars certain perceptions from coming in and colors them and distorts them. We come at reality. It's not really true that reality comes at us. We see only what form of mind, or we, we see only what form of mind allows us to see. We see only what the form of our mind allows us to perceive. To take an example of anger. If we are angry, we superimpose that anger upon the world. <clears throat> our anger then becomes our relationship with the world. It is our mind form with the world. It screens out everything else. Everything that passes when you're angry, everything that passes in front of your view is part of that anger. And it justifies and looks for things to justify and reinforce itself and screens out everything that may give it a more balanced perspective. I wonder, are we beginning to see the crisis, the urgency of what this contraption, this thing we've been carrying around our whole life is doing to us? Because the purpose of this talk really is to convey that kind of sense of, that sense of investigation, wonder, looking. I want to find out what's going on. That's what I think is an, a vital element in this meditation, is that, that urgency that we feel in ourselves to know to look. Because reality is always with us. It's our perceptual distortions which keep us from seeing it a certain way. And we must understand these perceptual distortions. We must begin to understand them for our mind to be able to accommodate to them, for our mind to be able to accommodate to a bigger picture. If we don't understand them, then we're just going to be completely lost in them. The Buddha said, the origins and creations of the world is within this fathom long body. Phantom long body. It's also a fathom long body. Fathom long body, excuse me. <laughs> Every time I rehearse this talk, I said the same thing. <laughs> And it's usually, it's usually, um, it's, it's, that's usually interpreted to mean the world of suffering is within this 
fathom long body. But I think the, it's much deeper than that. I think it actually means that the origin and creation of this world is with us. Our minds actually construct and create the world from our perceptual distortions. Let's look at one major distortion, one major way that we fix the world and ourselves to it. Let's look at our separation, our separateness, our sense of subject and objects that follows us around day after day through our whole lives, giving us a sense of loneliness and sense of isolation. The world in ourselves is a set of ideas. It's a set of abstractions accumulated in time, accumulated over time. If we look, a, look at the world, we see a set of objects, people objects, inanimate objects, inanimate objects. The objects are separated out and defined by our history of using them in a certain way. This is a watch. I know it's a watch because I've used a watch my whole life. I pick this thing up, I separate it out, I know its usefulness, I know why it's used the way it's used, I know how to use it because I have a history of watches, with watches. And so I, I program that into the object that I see. And so what we see, really, is our history of use with that particular thing. Look around. What do you see? What do you see new in this building or in this room? Everything the mind lights upon, it describes in terms of its use. It's in terms of its use that you've had with it. It's personal use. Example. Another example is like a hammer. A hammer means very different things to people. To a carpenter, it's a tool of very important use, very important, lots of importance and a significance to it. To a drummer in a band or to, a, to an architect or to a, somebody else, it's completely different. It may not have any use at all. And they look upon it with a completely different perception. We invest our mental conditioning onto objects. We give it a significance. Now the sense of self. Our notion of self comes from our ideas about ourselves over time, our history, how we function in relationship to the world. Ask yourself who you are. The answer to, those, to that question is a description of our abilities, our skills, our appearances, our appearance, our personalities, always in comparison with somebody else, with things of the world, always in relationship to the world. So our sense of self arises in relationship to the world itself. Our identity is also tied to the world, as the world is a tie to, a tie to our identity. We are a reflected being. Please follow, see, stay with me on this. It may be a little abstract and a little, but it can actually be seen and felt and can be very useful. We are a reflected being. Who we are 
is a set of ideas about ourselves in a particular situation. All of us have had exams or taken exams in school. You walk into that exam room. You have a certain confidence or ability that you feel as you walk into the room. You have a certain sense of yourself in relationship to the subject that you're taking the exam of. You have a, a history of whether you've been a good student or a bad student. Your identity as you walk into that room is dependent upon that room and the whole history that you've had, had with it. You've had with it. <coughs> also, as I was saying, that room itself has its identity in, in the same way with your history of having taken exams and what exams mean to you. So you have a good feel for the room or you don't like the room. To a carpenter, a hammer, he has confidence, self-confidence in it. His whole description of sense of self comes from that sense of tool that he picks up. That tool gives him a sense of self, a sense of ability, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of self-esteem. And at the same time, he gives that tool a sense of purpose, a sense of value. There was, an, there was a psychological study. So, uh, Our sense of self-definition and world definition arise together. They are like two sides of the same coin with reality, sort of the coin itself, you might say. Example of, of a psychological study I remember reading when I was um, in school of people who were born blind. And after 20 or 30 years, doctors were able to correct their vision. The operation hadn't been invented or understood at the time they were born. After 20 or 30 years, this set population of people who were born blind, the, the cure was discovered, and they were given an operation to correct their vision. When they took off the masks, or the blindfolds, what they saw was a confused set of data. They had no way of organizing it. And what happened to them was that it scared them. That, dis that, that was such an overwhelming input that it gave them a sense of confusion or fear from it. So we have a disorganized world we have a confused self. The self-description comes from the situation you're in, as well as the world itself comes from the sense of self. You see, it's like two sides of a tent. You take down one of the poles, the other one falls down. Those two things arise together. They're mutually, they're mutually dependent upon each other. It's a distortion in the way we perceive things to think that I'm here and the object is there that we're like separated and distant from each other. Those two things are actually the same thing that are occurring. So our re relationship re with reality is a created one. Through knowledge and learning, we impose a certain form on reality, a certain perceptual form on reality. But reality doesn't have a form to it. So when we put a perceptual fix upon reality, we limit it. You see? Like 
When you see something, you have a relationship with it. Immediately when you have a relationship with it, you fixed it in a certain way. When you fix it in a certain way, you've limited it. So whenever we perceive something, we've limited it. It's impossible to have a relationship with truth. You can't have a relationship with truth. You can only have a relationship with our ignorance. So everything we see is our ignorance. We live immersed in our ignorance. Everything. All our perceptions. All day long. We live life moving from fix to fix. Fixing the subject, fixing the object. I know you, I know your parents. I know where you were born. I know your history, we grew up together. I've got you set in my consciousness. I also know who I am in comparison to you. I know my strengths and weakness in comparison to your own. I know whether I'm a better this or a better that. It's our attempt to keep the world stable. It's the mind's attempt to solidify the world. To preserve ourselves, to preserve our status as continuous beings in a stable, meaningful world, the self assumes a position. We bring memory into perception in order to make ourselves continuous. Right? I know where I was yesterday, I can follow my tracks of time, and I know where, how I got to this spot here. I've, I'm now a continuous being. We freeze our perceptions, we freeze our positions to stop the confusion involved in change. If we can freeze our perceptual field, we can feel as if, we can't really do it, but we feel as if we've halted the inevitability of change. We've frozen it. We've got a fix on it now. We can hold it steady. And you see how the self, because it's, it comes in, in relationship to that fix, in relationship to that position, can feel very steady and sturdy as long as it can hold the world in position. You see? My sense of self can be equally as steady as long as I can hold that world steady. As long as I can fix it and keep it bound, and keep it, keep it secure. I remember in biology class, studying, I think it was taxonomy, I think that's the name of it, where you take each creature, and you run it through about 20 different um, categories, like Man is an animal, he's a mammal, he's a primate, he's a homo sapien, blah, 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 blah. but there are like 20 of them. And you could just see these scientists trying to fix that thing called man in these 20 different categories so, so they can get a position on him and hold him steady so they know what he is. You know? And they've got extended descriptions for each one of those categories. But these fixes, and this is an important point, comes from fear. That's the root of it, you see. The self is fearful 
of its own disintegration, of its own impermanence. And so it wants to fix things. It fixes the world, and in that way it fixes itself. The two are mutually dependent, remember. And the mind rejects anything that threatens it. Like, I mean, ESP and science. Many scientists won't even include the possibility of ESP because it threatens what they see as their world of science. And so the mind forces the facts, all the facts that can get into a static creation. I remember reading another psychological experiment one time in which these people wore eyeglasses and half of the eyeglasses were some sort of um, lens which inverted the image halfway so that if I looked at a person their head would be where your waist was and then that would I mean they'd be standing half of their body would be standing on their waist and their waist would be right side up Do you see what I mean like half the image was inverted and then they left these glasses on these people to see what would happen well the response of the mind was that after a few I don't know hours or minutes or some some amount of time the mind corrected it corrected itself so that it saw the person standing up just as it always stood. It, ha it couldn't. It couldn't function the other way. It was like, what is this, you know? And inside, completely unconscious to our, to our perceptual mechanism, this thing corrects it, you see? It can't stand something that doesn't fit its own categories of ways of seeing. Unfortunately, the price is high. The price for fixing things is high because the price is our separation. And that's a high price because that involves the loneliness and despair and all the other emotions that come with it. It seems that we come to spirituality partly opened and partly closed. We're open in the sense that our despair has created an openness to us, a ripeness, a ripeness, a saying, oh, there's got to be another way to live. And so we're open. Unfortunately, we're closed in the sense that we keep interpreting spirituality back into our old fixed patterns, ways of seeing. It's a reshuffled old mind. No news from the mind, just old worn-out reruns, somebody wrote in a poem one time. We like to, we come to spirituality and immediately we start embracing these fringe disciplines. Occult, reincarnation, astrology. We've got it all mapped out because it gives us a sense of perspective in the spiritual trip. We're f but we don't see that what we're doing is fixing our position. We're fixing ourselves. And a spiritual fix is no more freeing than a human worldly fix. They're both fixes and they're both equally as bonding. We see that? There's some usefulness to it. I don't want to say that there's not usefulness to these disciplines because fringe things because it, what they do do is they free us from our old beliths and they give us a, they show us the, the relativity of those belief systems 
I remember reading in the uh, Carlos Castaneda books, at one point Don Juan said, um, I think after the first two books or so, he said, you know, all these drug trips you've gone through that I've given you to do has only been for one purpose, and that is to shake you up from your old perceptions of the world. And so it did do that, except Carlos's mind just kept getting stuck in new ways and patterns of seeing. He'd write them all down. <clears throat> Meditation, in some ways, becomes another bondage for ourselves. My greatest hindrance in meditation has been my continual attempt to understand it. I keep putting my new, my, the insights I have back into the old package. I keep trying to understand what's happening to me. Back into our preconceived packages. We have an insight, we're sitting, have an insight. Oh, wow, where does that fit? You know, you want to you immediately bring it back into perception. You see why we're doing it, though? It's important not to lose that. Because it, this, when you have an insight, it frightens the ego. It shatters the ego because it comes from silence where the ego isn't. And in that perception, because the ego is frightened, it wants, to, it wants to be able to interpret that, that insight into a way, into a pattern that it can understand. So that's what we do it for. The purpose of meditation is to break through appearances. But it doesn't do much good if we keep structuring those breakthroughs in terms of our old, old content. For instance, we can be sitting, and this is one that we've all done, so go with me with this one. We'll be sitting, and we'll have had an argument, or angry, or some, just some scene in which we're very involved in the content of that scene. S-C-E-N-E, scene. And about halfway through, maybe, our minds will have quieted down enough so that it gets a different perspective on that content. And, and it sees it as a process. It sees, it's, it sees it as thought. And in the mind, it'll say, oh, that's only thinking. That's only thought. But do you see what happened at that point? You've frozen the fact that it was, the, you've frozen the process back into content. You've reestablished the processes of thinking or thinking back into the content, and you've refrozen ourselves into another fix. You see that? And that just keeps happening over and over and over again. Another way to reorganize these structures in spirituality, another way that we keep fixing ourselves is in terms of a laid down path. The Bodhisattva ideal, the ten Bhumis, surrendering to God, stages of enlightenment, letting go. All of these things are structured ways, fixes really, 
that keep us perceiving spirituality in a particular format, in a particular dualistic way, in a particular fix. Because it makes our journey safe. don't like that spiritual path when I don't know what's going to happen to me. But as I know that I'm on the fourth stage heading into the fifth, rounding the bend coming in, that's all right. I can handle that one. I did it. Uh, I'm doing it. I don't mean I'm finished with it at all. I'm doing it all the time. Smahasi stages right on through, boy. <laughs> Truth is not a model. It is not disposed in one way as opposed to another. It can't be, as soon as we fix something, we've lost it. Because truth, we can't have a relationship with truth. We can only have a relationship with a fix. We need to become aware of our fixes. We need to drop the beliefs and the goals which establish these fixes. We need to see how the self fixes itself in relationship to the world. The Buddha said, we cannot come to the end of suffering without knowing the end of the world. That is such a... We cannot come to the end of suffering without knowing the end of the world. We end the world when we end our positions in it. Our positions end when we stop generating new facts and structures from the data that's coming in. We cannot find truth by clarifying our ideas about the world, nor by leaving our positions unquestioned. We must leave everything open to question. Everything must be new and fresh as it comes in, and not interpreted, and not organized, and set back into a, an established pattern. Meditation is a call to question life more than anything else. It's a call to question life. It is a call to allow life to express itself, but not to describe what is expressed. Because description forces us back into our minds, forces us back into that perceptual fix. An open mind allows everything, accommodates everything. Nothing is stuck or fixed in an open mind. It's like a pipe with water passing through it. but the pipe itself has no substance.
That's what we're doing here. Moving into openness. Don't lose that sense of investigation and inquiry. It's like a pick which keeps the crystals of ice from forming on the water surface. It keeps that fix from happening and solidifying ourselves. We need to constantly pick through that ice. Challenge yourself. Challenge what you hear. Don't assume anything. Don't let things fix you. Fix us. Thank you. Okay. Whenever we have a relationship with an object, we have a particular perception of that object and of ourselves in relationship to it. So that there's a particular pattern that's set up, a particular thing that we see, a particular thing that we are in relationship to it. And we screen out all other possibilities except that particular description. Do you see? A clock. Okay, that's a clock, that's a watch, I know what it is, I know how to use it, I know everything. I know myself in relationship to it. Any other possibilities that that clock could be or that that object is are screened out in that perception. Sometimes so we, we see things fashioned in new and without the conception of the object. It's interesting. But in the very perception itself, there's, also, there's a perception of, of, of naming it as an object. There's also a, a distortion in the very perception itself. Because in the very perception itself, you have a perceiver of it. And it can be of oneness. It can be not just looking at that clock, per se, but it can be of everything included, all the, the whole thing included all together. But there's still a duality involved in that. And so there's still a fix. It can be the fix of oneness or the fix of, of individual objects. Both of those are equally as bond, binding, really. One's freeing in the sense, one's more freeing in the sense that it um, allows us much more, much more flexibility and access to things and a much wider variety of response and relationship to it. But it still locks us in a perceptual way of seeing it. And that's not freeing because in truth, there's no relationship with it. Immediately when we have a relationship with it, even if it's a relationship with oneness, there's a distortion. And in that distortion, that's our ignorance. So when we look, even in, in the totality of the perception, that's our ignorance. It's the ignorance of totality, of perception, the, the ignorance of oneness the ignorance of finiteness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.